0: do we hear? What parts of our brain respond to sound? And how can we use vibrations to expand the way we enjoy music? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're going on a sensory journey exploring the world of sound. And how we hear it.
1: The receptor cells in the inner ear are really beautiful, at least to my eyes and those of us in the field.
2: And then we started out thinking further, how could we enhance that aspect of pleasure? And
3: it was like a whole new richness and depth of sound. So that was amazing.
0: This is how we're wired. We live in a noisy world. Ticking clocks, musical notes, honking cars and whispered words. Our sense of hearing keeps us safe from dangers, helps us communicate with loved ones and soothes us when we're stressed. Most of us with a sense of hearing won't remember a world without it. As we learnt in our first Focus episode on language development, we start listening to the world around us when we're still in the womb. But what would it be like if
3: you could remember the moment you heard clearly for the very first time? So these are our lockdown chickens that we got at the very beginning of the first lockdown and they're going to try and escape, hang on a sec. Um, And we called them Rusty and Violet. I'm Vita and I'm an actor and dancer. When I was about eight weeks old, my mum realised that I was crying a lot. She couldn't lie me down and it turned out that it was my ears and that I was getting infections and something called glue ear that a lot of children get which is where your ear... Kind of fills up with like a goopy liquid, and the fluid builds up behind your eardrum, and then bursts because the pressure gets so much that it just bursts through. And I had this happen to me so many times that my eardrum just sort of were just gaping great big holes. (laughs) So I didn't really have much eardrum left by the time I was a young child. I think I'd go in for hearing tests all the time, and they play you little tones, and I'd quite quickly not be able to hear the tones that they were playing. And and I think when you're deaf you don't realise how much you're missing it would be things like whispers or like little jokes that people would share in the playground and I'd often miss things and everyone would burst out laughing and I'd be left behind. <laughs> It'd be like what? What <laughs> what just happened? What, what did I miss? And then I had some softly spoken teachers who were very difficult to hear and then low tones I found it very hard to hear my dad who had a low voice and then it's easy to slip into thinking oh are they talking about me or what are they saying is it something nasty or or whatever and so i do think there was an element of that that it's harder to be confident when you're not sure exactly what's going on in the world <laughs> i guess it got to a point where i got sick of missing out <laughs> and somebody one of the people at the hospital finally persuaded me that hearing aids might actually be a good way to go because then maybe i'd hear more <laughs> because before that i kind of thought they weren't cool i was going to stand out but actually It was the best thing I could have done because suddenly it was like a talking point. I'd wear my AIDS and I'd see somebody looking at them and then I'd say, okay, yeah, like, yes, I have a hearing impairment. So I was able to bring it up more easily and let people know that that was the case. But also just in terms of my actual hearing, oh, it was amazing. You know, I suddenly could hear all sorts of sounds that I couldn't before, that I wasn't even aware of. So things like the clock ticking in the classroom or... like I always say this one naughty boys with like rulers banging on the table and stuff and so you know you get a lot of (laughs) unnecessary sound and when you first get hearing aids you suddenly get this pool of extra sound that you didn't have before and your brain hasn't yet learned to filter out the unnecessary sound so it's overwhelming (laughs) you just have this like barrage of extra noise and it was really tiring both before AIDS and after AIDS (laughs) because before AIDS you're just constantly trying to hear people so you're constantly either lip reading or watching or trying to guess if they've asked you a question (laughs) or whether it's okay you just don't have to say anything you know all those kind of awkward moments that you just can take for granted when you can hear everything. (laughs)
0: I can remember my own father complaining about the overstimulation of sound when he got his hearing aids for the very first time, even though, overall, they were a massive benefit to him. But for Vita, hearing aids weren't the end of her journey with her hearing, as we'll hear later on in the episode. So, how does our sense of hearing actually work? And what parts of our brain are involved in making sense of sound? I put the question to someone who has dedicated his career to understanding just that.
1: I'm David Corey. I am the Brita Professor of Translational Medical Science in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. One of the big challenges that we face as organisms is understanding the world around us. And so we've evolved a number of different sensory systems whose purpose is to convert a physical stimulus into something the brain can understand. One example would be sound, where the vibration in the air is conveyed to our ears and then captured. But there are others as well. There's our sense of smell, where different molecules can be grabbed by specialized sensory cells and then an electrical signal generated, or one that we don't think about very much, our sense of touch. They're all involved in this one job of bringing a physical stimulus to something the brain can understand.
0: You mentioned a word there, a term, receptor. What is a receptor?
1: The word receptor is used in several different ways. One of them is a cell in the body that responds to a particular physical stimulus. So we might talk about a photoreceptor in the retina that receives light. And we might talk about the receptors of the inner ear that are called hair cells. So in each case, the receptor is kind of the core element, the core cell that does the conversion between two different kinds of information. But the information has to be carried into the receptor. So our external ear and ear canal funnel the sound to the eardrum. It's carried by a series of bones to the inner ear then the conversion happens, and then the signal, the information, has to go to the brain, and that's carried by neurons, by nerve cells that have fibers that carry a very short electrical signal, and so forth. In each case, there's a part of the system that carries the energy into the cell, and then a part that carries the electrical information to the brain. The big challenge in having high sensitivity hearing is to capture as much of the sound as we can from the environment and then to convey that sound from the external ear all the way into the inner ear. And there are several stages of that sound transmission. The first stage is as the sound goes from the external ear down the ear canal, it hits the eardrum, which is also called the tympanic membrane. And that eardrum is kind of a boundary between the external ear and what's called the middle ear. The middle ear is an enclosed but air-filled space. Inside the middle ear are three tiny bones, the smallest bones in your body, that are called the auditory ossicles. So how does that all work? The vibration of sound causes the eardrum to vibrate. The eardrum, in turn, is connected to the first one of these little bones. So that bone vibrates. That pushes on the next bone. That pushes on the next bone. And that finally pushes on the fluid in the inner ear, in the cochlea. So the eardrum is essential in the first step of the mechanical coupling of sound into the inner ear.
0: What's astonishing about hearing is it's just such an incredibly mechanical process, actually, isn't it?
1: It's very mechanical, and that's what I love about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a very mechanical kind of person. (laughs) It's a good fit. Excellent.
0: You mentioned the receptor cells. What do they look like?
1: The receptor cells in the inner ear are really beautiful, at least to my eyes and those of us in the field. They're called hair cells. Because they have little tuft of cilia coming out of the top. So the cilia are not hairs. They look a little bit like hairs. The early anatomists saw them and then gave them the name hair cell because of this. But the structure of these little cilia is completely unlike the structure of a hair. The interesting thing is that as sound comes in through the external ear, through the middle ear, and finally into the fluid of the inner ear, it causes a tiny vibration so that this bundle of cilia moves back and forth with every cycle of sound. The actual movement is extraordinarily small. It's a few millionths of a millimeter, and that's something that the cell can respond to. How the cell responds to it is one of the most interesting things. And that is that if you look with an extremely powerful microscope, an electron microscope, you can see that between each one of these cilia is a very, very fine protein filament. So that as the cilia move one way, the filaments get stretched. And when the cilia move the other way, they get relaxed.
0: David explained this incredible mechanism where the tiny cilia are attached to tiny holes, like pores, in the cell membrane called ion channels. When the cilia move in response to sound, that pulls directly on the pore, causing it to open up. And it's the opening up of these little pores in the cell membrane that creates an electrical signal. But how does that work? Eva's here to explain.
4: The idea that our brains and nervous systems run on electricity can feel like a strange one. But I find it helps to forget about light bulbs and wall sockets and consider what electricity itself actually is. Everything we know is made of atoms, and atoms themselves are made of even smaller particles, which can be positively, negatively, or just not charged. Electricity is just the flow or transfer of charged particles. In our phones or TVs, it's specifically the flow of the negatively charged particles, called electrons, that is giving them power. But in our brains and nerve cells, the electricity is generated slightly differently. See, your nerve cells are themselves negatively charged, actively pumping out positive particles and trapping negative ones inside. The cells have a selection of mechanisms to keep it that way. It's kind of like temperature. You can keep the inside of your house a different temperature from outside by keeping the doors and windows shut and pumping out hot air using air conditioning. But if you open up the doors on a hot summer day and let in a lot of hot air, you change the temperature of your house. For nerve cells, if they open up some of their doors, or iron channels, they can let in a gush of positive particles, causing the cell itself to become positive. This can create a stampede of positivity throughout the cell and often causes the cell to tell its connected neighbours to become positive as well, setting off a chain reaction that creates a hive of activity in the brain. Positive particles will then flow out of the cell, resetting it to its negative state. And this whole process can happen at the scale of milliseconds and is going on in your brain and nervous system literally all the time. how do cells pass on the positive message? Well, nerve cells communicate with each other via connections called synapses. Although these are connections, they really are tiny little gaps between the spiky bits of different nerve cells. At synapses, nerve cells hold little packets of chemical information in the form of neurotransmitters. You might have heard of serotonin or dopamine, two neurotransmitters involved in mood, but there are many others. When a cell becomes positive, like when the hair cells in the ear vibrate and pull open their doors, or iron channels, it can stimulate the release of these packets of neurotransmitters, which travel across the tiny gaps and bind to the connected cell. This can trigger the cell to become positive itself, which in turn leads to more synapses, passing on more information, etc., etc. You get the picture. So, when scientists talk about electricity in the brain, they're talking about the flow of charged particles in and out of nerve cells, which is happening at such a large scale across so many neurons that your brain actually generates enough electricity to power a light bulb.
0: So, while you're listening to this podcast, your brain is firing off signal after signal, which is crossing synapse after synapse, in order for you to hear and understand what I'm saying all thanks to the hair cells in your ear. And actually, the location of those hair cells
1: matters a lot. These hair cells are all residing in a snail-shaped structure called the cochlea. It's snail-shaped just because it's about 35 millimeters long and you have to wrap it up in a little coil in order to fit it inside the head. Cochlea, of course, just means snail in Greek. This ribbon of sensory cells within the cochlea does this remarkable job of taking an incoming sound and separating it into the different frequencies so that as my vocal cords are moving and my lips are moving, a a word that I might say would have low frequencies from the vocal cords moving, high frequencies from, say, a T or an S sound. These different sounds excite the hair cells in different parts of the cochlea. So that in one region, only high frequencies excite the cell. In another region, middle frequencies. And in another region, only the low frequencies. And then different nerve fibers from these different regions carry different information to the brain. So each nerve fiber is not just telling us that a sound is occurring, but it's telling us what the frequency of that sound is.
0: And where in our brain then do we process Sound.
1: Different parts of the brain process different sensory information. So the back of the brain, for instance, processes visual information. But the part that's sensitive to auditory stimuli is called the temporal lobe. So if you were to feel the part of your skull roughly between your ear and your eye, and then move up just a little bit, right under there would be the temporal lobe. And that is the auditory part of the brain
0: bearing in mind how incredibly complex the human brain is it's pretty astonishing that we can still point to one bit of it and say that's the bit that helps you hear and it's certainly the case for me at home with my three dogs, two children, one husband and many guinea pigs and rabbits I'm used to being surrounded by sound often coming from varying directions around the house so how do our brains understand where different sounds are coming from?
1: One of the wonderful things for the auditory system is that we have two ears. And any sound in the environment is reaching both of those ears, but maybe reaching the two ears a little bit differently. So that, for instance, if a sound is coming from my right side, for instance, it's reaching the right ear less than a thousandth of a second before it reaches the left ear. But the brain is so good at detecting timing differences in the auditory system, the brain can say, well, that sound came to the right ear first. It must be a sound over to my right. Also, the sound is going to be a little bit louder in my right ear than in my left ear. So by comparing the signals between the two ears, the brain does a very good job of distinguishing where a sound is coming from. Because I can tell where a sound is coming from, I can infer what the sound source is. Say, at a dinner party, I can tell that sound is coming from the person across from me at the table and not somebody down at the other end of the table. The brain then uses that information to shut down the signals coming from other places, the part that you're not interested in, and to kind of allow to filter through only the sounds that are coming from the person or object of interest. and that is hugely useful in helping us understand complex sounds in a crowded room with a lot of sound source. If you lose hearing in one ear, you can't do that localization. All the sounds tend to merge together and it's much more difficult to be able to listen to just one sound out of a complex auditory background.
0: Along with only having hearing in one ear, another thing that can make localising sound in space more difficult is the use of hearing aids. I know from my dad's experience of wearing hearing aids in a crowded room that it can be really tricky to discern one conversation from another. For him, it meant a little bit of extra learning. And for Vita, who we heard from earlier, although the hearing aids changed her hearing and her life for the better, they didn't stop
3: the onslaught of ear infections that she was vulnerable to. I studied dance at Middlesex University, and in my third year I got really bad ear infections. Just back-to-back, like, dribbling ear, I'd have to miss a lot of classes, or I'd just go in and, like, keep wiping my ears. And I was tired all the time, I was really run down by all these infections. And so I went to see a lady in Oxford, and she helped microsuction my ears. And she said, why don't you see this incredible surgeon, Mr Bottrell? So I said, "Okay, fine. I'm kind of sick of it by now. And Mr. Bottrell persuaded me to have the Moringoplasty surgery. He said that basically they recreate your eardrum by taking a little bit of skin or kind of cartilage or something from the front of your ear and possibly just behind your ear. And then they sort of actually just make that into a little eardrum, which is kind of like the size of maybe a very small fingernail and then they kind of scratch around where your eardrum should be to kind of scar the area a bit and roughen it up and then they just lay the eardrum on and hope that your body will accept the tissue and that it will heal in place and then that's kind of like a new eardrum they fill your ear full of packing to keep it safe and protected whilst it's healing then when they took it out after a couple of weeks it was insane I mean it was partly because it'd been blocked up for weeks but also I suddenly had hearing (laughs) I suddenly could hear things that I hadn't ever heard before with my own ears and so it was things like birdsong and things like traffic in the street fridges humming so a lot of like ambient sounds that I hadn't heard before and then also things like I felt like everyone was shouting (laughs) It was obviously just relative and my brain obviously needed to just adjust to it. But I kept going around saying to everyone, shh, shh, you're so loud. Why are you being so loud? (laughs) Because I suddenly had this improved hearing. I was listening to music tracks that I'd heard all my life. And then I was saying to people, hang on, is this a different version? Have they added something what's going on because i've always heard this track and wait a sec i can hear the bass (laughs) so i could suddenly hear layers of music and like textures within the music like the line and things that i'd never heard before in the same music that i've been listening to all my life and it was like a whole new richness and depth of sound to these tracks that i'd always listened to and so that was amazing because it was like the world just got brighter and more like technicolor and i've always had a very strong sense of rhythm I, i love rhythm i love percussion, and I think it's something that you feel more than you necessarily just hear. I think you feel it in your bones.
0: (laughs) It's astonishing that modern science has reached a point that we can give somebody a perfect working ear drum. and like Vita said, that feeling of how music is often more than just something we hear, but something we feel, is something that gave a couple of scientists an idea what if you could expand your experience of music from just listening with your ears to listening with your whole body? Sound is just vibrations after all and our bodies can feel the vibration of music sometimes too. That's what scientists in Geneva and Freiburg have been working on focusing on helping deaf people get more pleasure out of music. We headed over to Switzerland to learn all about it.
5: My name is Mario Persa. I'm currently assistant professor in the Department of Neuroscience in the University of Fribourg. We are trying to fundamentally understand how we use touch, so how we use receptors in our skin to perceive uh, vibrations. So we did some initial studies where we discovered uh, how these tactile vibrations are represented in the brain. And what we discovered is the actual code, how these tactile vibrations are represented by neurons in the brain, is very close to how neurons represent sound, which are also vibrations. They're not tactile vibrations, they're airborne vibrations. And by finding out these parallels, well, we asked, well, perhaps this tactile channel can actually be used to communicate with individuals that cannot hear well, that are deaf.
0: So it's that very close relationship in the brain between how we process vibration and how we process sound. That's what you're exploiting. Exactly. And when we're looking particularly at the receptors that pick up vibration, where are they?
5: So they sit inside our skin, also much more deeper, so below our skin, next to the bones, inside our joints. And what's very interesting, we have receptors, mechanoreceptors, which are specialised to transmit or to sense vibrations. Yeah, so these are one of the largest receptors. We can actually, um, I don't um, recommend you do this, but if you actually open up the skin in your fingertip, you can actually see them with a magnifying glass.
0: And why have we evolved to be so incredibly sensitive to vibration? What's the advantage of being able to pick up this particular sense?
5: Yes, that's a very difficult question. We don't know why. there is many possibilities why we have this very specific, very specialised sense of vibrations. So if you look at very simple organisms, so one, one explanation that I can provide. For example, insects, they are known to use vibrations to communicate with one another. They do not communicate vocally. They communicate by transmitting vibrations through substrates, for example, tree branches, leaves, and so on. And if you look at certain organisms, like the fruit fly, they have a, the Johnston organ, which is actually used to perceive both sound and touch. So, for example, to pick up sound and to pick up wind, the direction of the wind, for example. And there is the idea that actually vocal communication that we use, that the communications through vibrations is actually an evolutionary precursor to vocal communications. This is one idea. It's a hypothesis that might also explain why we find these very close parallels between these two systems.
0: So vibration, the sense of vibration, in a way, came before the sense of hearing?
5: Exactly. It's mostly insects, but there are some, some yeah. mammalian species. For example, naked mole rats. So they're known to vibrate their tunnels. So they live in these subterranean tunnels. They're known to bang their heads against the wall of these tunnels. Okay. And this is how they communicate with, with conspecifics.
0: Wow, yeah. that's amazing. In terms of the vibrations, what range of vibration can we feel?
5: Right, so the human hand or the human tactile system can feel vibrations in the range from 10 hertz, so very low frequency vibrations, all the way up to 1 kilohertz or 1,000 hertz. So if you would, for example, put your hand on a loudspeaker that plays music, you would not hear the whole range of frequencies because our auditory system, our ears, can hear up to 20,000 hertz. And our tactile system, as I said, is only sensitive up to approximately 1,000 hertz. So if you would put your hand on a loudspeaker, you would hear the very low frequency, sort of the bass of the the music.
0: In case you were wondering, as I was, 20,000 hertz sounds like this. Can you hear it? I definitely can't, but I'm not panicking quite yet because 20,000 hertz is very much at the top of the human capability. And 1,000 hertz sounds something like this. And as Mario said, our ears can hear a wider range of sound vibrations than our skin can sense tactile physical vibrations. Essentially, our skin can't feel the higher frequency, very fast vibrations in the same way our ears can. Which makes sense when you think about how thin the eardrum is in comparison to our skin. Like how a violin string can vibrate very quickly in comparison to a thick rope. Despite that difference, the similarities in how our brains process both sound and tactile vibrations meant that the team wanted to see if there was a way of hijacking the system to expand the way music can be enjoyed, particularly for deaf people. Although, as often happens in science, that's not necessarily how they expected the research to go.
2: My name is Daniel Huber. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Geneva. Once we started on the vibration system, a recurrent question that always came up after every presentation is, well, what do we need vibrations for? And so we thought maybe we have to talk to groups which have thought about this longer than we have. And so the first group we talked to were the deaf community. And we expected them to tell us that they would sense danger with their sense of vibration and so on. But that wasn't at all the case. They basically all said, we use this for mostly for pleasure during concerts or the cinema. And that's where it matters to us. And uh, many also said they just like to put their hands onto the loudspeaker at home and feel the loudspeakers vibrate when the radio is on. And then we started out thinking further, how can we enhance that aspect of pleasure? Because we already knew at that time that the frequency range in humans was very, very limited to the frequency range in music. And so we know they miss a big chunk of the musical experience. And so that's where, why the idea basically emerged. Can we converge some aspects of music into the frequency range that is actually perceptible to our sense of vibration.
0: So if we think about translating music into vibrations, what sort of device would somebody have to enable them to feel those vibrations?
2: So we first designed a chair. (laughs) And in parallel, one of our deaf participants, she designed a bench herself in our garage. So that's where we started and then started digging a bit deeper which areas are actually most sensitive to vibrations and very quickly we, we noticed that sitting on a vibrating source is not the most comfortable thing to do. And it's also not the most sensitive area. And then we tested out different areas. And first of all, obviously, the hands are by far the most sensitive. And afterwards, the rest of the body is sort of relatively equally in the insensitivity. And so all of a sudden that we realized sitting is not the right thing. And then the alternative was to lie on the bench that this uh, particular subject brought into the lab. And that was actually a fun experience. And out of that then grew the idea to design that bed because it would allow us to inject, so to say, vibrations into feet, into uh, the top of the body, into the head, into the hands, into the joints, the elbows, uh, anywhere we want.
0: Daniel and his team found a way of separating out the different frequencies from a piece of music, so taking the high-pitched parts of a song, separating them from the medium-pitched and low-pitched parts and then differentially vibrating different parts of the bed they created to the tune of the different pictures. I was super excited to take a look. So we're on our way to see the bed, which we've heard a lot about. And try for myself. This this room within the university, and it's here in front of me. And it's, um, it's incredibly mechanical looking, I will say that. So it's got a metal frame on it, some sheets of plywood. It looks a little bit like an overly complicated sun lounger. I think, probably.
2: So it's, it's nothing else than a launcher, actually. That's what we initially designed it as. It just has an articulated part with wood for the back, then one for the thighs, and then one for the legs. And now we added just one for the feet. And so we can actuate each one of these plates has a particular loudspeaker underneath it. And so we can vibrate each part at the frequencies we're interested in. I'll just go on it myself yes, for a second. Yes, show me. Best is to take off the shoes mm-hmm. if you want. You're gonna feel the vibrations best actually on the on, on the on the feet. It's I'm not such a big fan of the feet, personally. <laughs> I put a big cushion here just because it's comfortable, and then best is to put your hands uh, sort of like this.
0: Right. Yes, I am.
2: So I'll get started. So we'll, we'll first hear it just on the loudspeaker. And now we're gonna. Add the vibrations to the hands.
0: So now it's vibrating in my hand. And it seems to be like you're vibrating at the higher, higher frequency of the sound I can hear. Exactly. Oh, and now we've got the feet. Which is a really emotional thing, actually. When you feel sound through your feet, I don't know why. And now I've got my back and my chest vibrating. And it is the most amazing whole body experience. You feel like you're actually wrapped up in the music rather than it being quite external to you. And it's really lovely actually. A really nice sensation.
2: All right, now we're just gonna take away one after the other. So first we're gonna take away the body. Okay.
0: It's weird, it's like a sense of loss. Yeah. And
3: finally the hands.
0: It's really like, now it's just quite an empty experience. I mean, I'm aware of the music playing, but it's not the same fully encompassing sensation at all. And it feels a little bit empty, I think. Being on the bed was an amazing and certainly unique experience it was wonderful to lie down and feel myself in the embracing warmth of a piece of music. And as Daniel mentioned, they've been creating this bed with participation from the deaf community who are giving them feedback on what feels good and what needs some tweaking. They hope that one day this research could lead to a portable device that deaf people could take with them to the cinema or to a concert so they could experience the power of vibrations whenever they wish. I loved hearing about how we hear, how something so incredibly mechanical is turned into electricity, which in turn becomes something so meaningful to us. And that's just one of our senses. We'll be exploring taste, touch, smell and others later on in the series. And that's it for this week. Join us in a few weeks' time for a deep dive into the neuroscience of memory, where we get a look at the brain of a London cabbie and uncover what it means to remember. In the meantime, we're back in two weeks for another one of our Focus episodes, where Eva's exploring the intricate tech that scientists are using to reveal secrets of hearing loss. I'm Anna Machin, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode.